All right, all right. Well, let's get ready today to get into the Word together. Did you bring your Bible with you? If not, just grab one really quick out of the seat in front of you and say yes anyway. Now, we've got those there for your convenience. And uh, we'll put some of these verses up on the screen today as we get into our text. We're in a series that we're calling This Is Us. That little blooper reel that you saw, um, that was actually... Pastor Chris and I, uh, when we were shooting the footage for our life group series. So if you haven't been a part of the life groups, uh, that's just a little preview of what it's not like. It's way more serious than that. But that is the format. It's uh, Chris and I just sitting there on the stools and, and we're leading the discussion. We have about uh, 10 to 12 minute videos on a topic. And then you pause the video and your life group has a discussion. So we want to encourage you, if you haven't joined a group... Uh, Join in one. If you say, boy, you know, I've got some folks I'd love to go through with that. Uh, we've got the DVDs and the leader manuals at the Info Center. You could take one and start a group this week. Uh, you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a Bible teacher. Uh, just you need to know how to be hospitable and how to push play on the DVD player. And uh, you're set to go. And so that's, that's a lot of fun. And uh, Val, our secretary, put that together unbeknownst to us. So... Um, Good to laugh at yourself sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, you're like, it's better to laugh at you. <laughs> Luke chapter 10. I want us to go to Luke chapter 10 today. We're going to look at a story that, uh, I'll be honest, this is one of those stories that probably everybody here has heard at least at some point in your life. A couple weeks ago, in this series, we looked at a famous parable in Luke 15 about the lost son, the prodigal son. And, uh, you know, Luke, he, he told 27 parables, or 27 of Jesus' parables. He recorded them. Uh, my youngest daughter, Mally, was looking at the, uh, at her Bible, I think it was yesterday, yesterday or Friday. And uh, I told her I was teaching on this story, so she was trying to find it. And I kind of forgot what she was doing, and I went on to do something else. And after about ten minutes, she said, man, there's a lot of parables in here. <laughs> there are. There's 27 of them just in Luke. But of all of them, this is probably the most famous one. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of you are familiar with that? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, when we say Good Samaritan, we think about somebody who does a good thing. Somebody who's kind to somebody else. Somebody who's uh, generous. We think of maybe even organizations like Samaritan's Purse, where they go and do disaster relief. And they've been involved with this hurricane relief efforts in the last couple months. But when Jesus talked about a Good Samaritan in Luke 10, that phrase was so foreign to his audience. The Jews despised the Samaritans. In fact, they probably never even heard the words good and Samaritan in the same sentence. And so Jesus tells this story uh, and he tells it with specific characters to emphasize a point that he wants to teach us. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at this story and we're going to look at some of the characters in the story. But I want to ask you to do something as you hear the word today. As you receive this message, I want to challenge you to invite the Holy Spirit to, to put His finger on your heart and on your life so that as I describe the characters, as I talk about uh, what happened in this story, that not only would we see them and see where they're at, but that we would 
feel and sense the Holy Spirit saying to you and I, this is us. This is me. This is what God is trying to show me today. God wants to show you something in his word. Do you believe that today? Amen. So let's come to the word with that heart that says, God, show me my heart and make it more like yours. We're going to get into this story in just a moment, but before we read the actual parable, I want to give some context. I want us to look at uh, the conversation that incited Jesus to teach this incredible parable. It's found in Luke chapter 10 and beginning in verse 25. It says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you know what? That's a good question. That's a question hopefully you've come to at some point in your life. How do I get to heaven? That was the question. The thing that was wrong with this question is not what he asked, but his motives behind it. The Bible tells us here that this man wanted to test Jesus. You ever had somebody that wanted to talk to you about faith, but they really didn't want to learn anything? They just wanted to test you? You ever had those conversations? People are just testing you. They, They want to debate they want to make you look bad. They want to prove they know more than you. But they're not seeking knowledge. And that was really the heart motive behind this man. At least that's the way it began. He wanted to test Jesus. And so Jesus responds to him uh, in an awesome way. He uses the Socratic method of debate. And he just answers the question with a question. A lot of New Yorkers do that. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> right? He answers the question with a question, and by doing that, he gets the guy to answer his own question. It's brilliant. Look at it in verse 26. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people would read that and think, wow, this guy must have been paying attention when Jesus taught what the greatest commandment was. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the same question. What's the greatest commandment? And his reply was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus didn't make that up right then, contrary to what a lot of people believe. That was actually the the standard... uh, rabbinic answer to the question the rabbis had studied the old testament they had studied the law they had studied the ten commandments and they came to this conclusion they took a scripture out of deuteronomy and they took one out of leviticus and they said when you put these two together it really is the culmination of everything that god's told us to do love god and love people so this educated expert of the law gives the correct answer in that moment when jesus asked him How do you interpret it? What does it say? So the guy gives his answer and then Jesus replies. Look at verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And I love Jesus' response in this moment because right here what Jesus is doing is the exact same thing I've intended to do through this series. We've called this series, This Is Us, because the Bible says in James that the Word of God is like a mirror. And so when we look into the Word, not only do we read the Word, the Word reads us. And we see what we're like. And we see what needs to change, because the Word is unchanging. It's absolute truth. And so it calls us to adjust course in our own lives. So that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. This guy comes to him saying, what must I do 
to be saved. In other words, he was convinced that he could do the right things and say the right things and get to heaven. And so Jesus says, well, if, if, if your means to heaven is obeying the law, what's the law say? And then the man tells him the law. And so Jesus holds up the mirror of God's word in that moment. He says, okay, then just do that for the rest of your life perfectly and you'll get there. See, Jesus knew this guy is never going to be able to do enough right, obey enough commandments, live by enough laws. He's never going to be able to fulfill enough commandments to actually get to heaven. But he wanted that man to understand it too. And so he holds up the mirror of God's word. And that's what God wants us to see in the mirror of God's word. That the standard for righteousness is perfection. And all of us fall short of it. See, there's nothing wrong with the word of God. The law of God is perfect. Psalm 19.7 says, The law is refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. See, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is our inability to obey it. Yeah, I shouldn't be the only one saying amen on that, right? Take your halo off this morning. See, the problem is, and Paul defined it this way in Romans Chapter 7, he said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave into sin. That's the condition this man was in. That's the condition that we're in. And then this guy does something in verse 29. I want you to put your eyes on this verse. Verse 29 says, but he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus... And who is my neighbor? You know, as I was looking through this text, trying to uh, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to me about where we're at in the story, when I read those words, he wanted to justify himself. That was the first moment that I said, this is us. This is us. This is what we do. We look at what God demands, and then we try to find exceptions. We try to find the loophole. We, we try to find some caveat where we can do what we're doing in spite of what we know God's commanded and still be okay with God. He tried to justify himself. Problem with that is, the Bible tells us clearly, Romans 8.33, it is God who justifies. I can't justify myself. I can't live right well enough. I can't obey enough commandments. I can't give enough to the church. I can't show up at enough... Uh, activities or services or programs. I can't be a good enough husband or father to my children. There's nothing that I can do to justify myself before God. So if this expert in the law was honest, his real question would have come like this. He would have said, Jesus, I've tried to honor God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, my strength. And and I've tried to love my neighbor as myself. But I've fallen short. So how can I, a lawbreaker, receive eternal life? That's the real question. How can I get in in spite of me and in spite of what I've done? But he's not at that place yet. And so he tries to justify himself. And and the loophole he's looking for when Jesus says, hey... Just love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself is this question in verse 29. He says, and who is my neighbor? You know what he's really saying in that moment? He's saying, okay, if I got to love my neighbor, uh, who does that include? 
Maybe a better way of phrasing the question would be, he's saying, okay, Jesus, who can I not love and still get in? Right? I mean, surely, when Jesus said, do this and you will live, the inference in the original language that he was saying, continue to do this. In other words, this is not a once and done thing. This is every day for the rest of your life. And so this guy's saying, okay, there's got to be some parameters, right? I mean, there's got to be some limitations on this love thing. It's, this is too radical. This is too extravagant. Who does it include? And, and that question is what launches Jesus into this incredible story of the Good Samaritan. He gives this parable so that we can find application in our own lives. And we're going to talk through it a little bit. But first, I want to just read it. It's the next five verses. Look at it with me. Let's refresh our memories on this incredible story. Starting in verse 30, it says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and he went and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now this story, it's a parable, which means it's made up. Jesus makes up the characters. Could have been any man going down the road. Could have been any priest, any Levite. He makes up this scenario. But the circumstances surrounding this story are very real. In fact, when Jesus starts telling this story and says, there was a man that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. It was a very treacherous road. It was steep. It was rocky. And there were a lot of narrow passages where robbers could hide and, and just pick people off who were traveling by themselves. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. It was at 3,000 feet elevation. Whereas Jericho was a thousand feet below the Mediterranean Sea. And so for a person to go from way up in Jerusalem down to Jericho on this 17 mile road, it was a dangerous journey. In fact, the name of the road was the way of blood. And so Jesus' story is hypothetical, but the scenario is, is very relatable. And everybody knows that this is not a good situation this man has put himself in. When robbers come and rob him, that's a believable storyline. When it becomes unbelievable is when Jesus starts to introduce the other characters. The first person Jesus mentions is the priest. Now the priest in this day and age is the most likely character to be the good guy. He's the good guy in the story. And so here's a man who, who's fallen on hard times. He's been robbed. He's been left half dead. And here comes the priest. And I'm sure all the priests listening begin to perk up and even puff out their chest. But Jesus says, but he passed by on the other side. 
And then he says there's another man that comes and he's a Levite. Now, if, if the if the priests are, are the cream of the crop when it comes to high society, just beneath them are the Levites. Those men that, that served uh, in the temple and served in the law. The Levites were looked on with high admiration. And so everybody's assuming that the Levite is going to step in. But Jesus says, but he too went around and left the man lying there. The two most religious types of people in the Jewish culture walk around the man in need. And Jesus mentions something very specifically when he talks about them passing by. He says they were heading down on the same road. Now that's important because some people might think that they had a noble or even a spiritual reason for not getting involved. See, there was a common law in the day that, that you can't touch a dead body or a dead uh, animal and, and be clean for service. And so some people might think, well, these guys were on their way to worship and they had a responsibility to do to serve God and serve the people. And so they couldn't touch this man, fearing the risk that he might be dead. But Jesus tells the story clearly. This man was not on his way to Jerusalem to worship. This priest, this Levite, they were headed down. In other words, they had already been to the temple. They had already performed their duties. And Jesus tells this story as an indictment on their, on their missing the second half of the great commandment. That great commandment of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The way Jesus tells the story is these men have already gone to the temple. They've been up to Jerusalem. They loved God. But on their way down, they missed the obvious opportunity to love their neighbor. They go around him and they avoid him. Jesus tells the story in this way to illustrate the hypocrisy of a person that says, I love God with all my heart. And yet they pay no mind. To someone else who's in need. Now Jesus didn't pick these characters haphazardly. He's illustrating something. And in fact, by this point in the story, most of the people know what kind of story this is. It it was a common type of storytelling where you, you give three scenarios. The first one gets it wrong. The second one gets it wrong. And then the third one gets it right. It's like the three little pigs, right? Trying to build the house. First one got it wrong. Second one got it wrong. Third one got it right. It's like three billy goats gruff. So Jesus tells this story and now everybody knows the next guy is going to get it right. We see what you're doing here. And everybody expects that the next person Jesus says goes down the road is going to be the common Jewish man. Because, hey, Jesus is a friend of sinners and, and he's, the, he's the son of man. He... he Relates to the common people and surely that's who he's going to make the hero of the story. But Jesus does something exceptional. And there's a reason for it. And it has to do with that structure of hierarchy in their culture. That everyone saw the priest as the most noble, as the most holy, as the most godlike people. And then just outside of that circle were the Levites. The Levites were people that were looked up to and admired and had a, a place of prominence in the culture. And then outside of that circle was the common Jewish man. But if you keep moving outside of that, you find on the fringes of society are the tax collector, the sinner, the outcast. Those people that 
that don't really fit in. They're still a part of Jewish culture as well, but they're far outside the scope of the common Jew. But if you go a little farther than that, those people that are despised and hated by the Jewish culture, you find the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And so Jesus... When he says a third man came down the road, he skips right over the common Jewish man. He skips right over mentioning a tax collector or an outcast or a sinner. And he says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. When Jesus said that, these people were shocked. They couldn't believe that Jesus would, would say a Samaritan is the hero in the story. I mean, this way of thinking was so ingrained in their culture that even, even in the temple worship, when they read the scriptures, the priest always read first, then the Levite read, and then the common man could read. And, and Jesus bypasses all of, all of their preferences and and order and he says the Samaritan is the hero in the story now I want to just look at this character for just a minute because if there's anybody in the story that we can point to and say that's the heart of God that's Jesus in the story how many of you know it's the Samaritan Jesus is the one that that came to us at the place where we were broken Anybody been broken? Anybody been in need of a savior? Anybody felt like you were half dead before? That's the illustration that Jesus paints. And he says, but a good Samaritan came and he rescued the man. He bandaged up his wounds. He put him on his donkey. He led him to the inn. Jesus is the good Samaritan in the story. And if he's the Samaritan in the story, then he communicates something to us. That we saw that was missing in the priest and the Levite. That all of the religious responsibility, all of the ceremonialism, all of the traditionalism, that stuff in your time of need is going to just keep walking right past you. Doesn't matter how long you've been in church. Doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible. Doesn't matter how many times you've taken communion or if you've been baptized in water. All of that stuff amounts to nothing if you don't have Jesus. And that's the point that he's communicating here. That all of those men with their pomp and circumstance, they just kept on going. But Jesus is the one who saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's the one that picks up the broken. How many of you know we ought to tell people about Jesus? You know, I'm so grateful when people invite others to church. You ought to invite people to church. They're going to hear the word of God. Their life can be changed. But you know what's better than inviting people to church? Inviting people to Jesus. Hey, I got a, I got a tag team preacher up here. <laughs> come on. <laughs> That's why you want to come to the 11 o'clock service. Because you don't know what's going to happen now. It's lunchtime. I think he's, a, he was looking for a snack. <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> we can't be too serious. You already saw the blooper reel. So, you know, story's out on that, you know. <laughs> but let me tell you. Jesus alone, not church, not religion, not ceremonialism. Jesus can change a person's life. We ought to tell them about Jesus. But there's another character in this story that I I really like. And then I read this story and I'm saying, God, show me where I'm at. Am I I that Samaritan? Am I that good Samaritan that goes and rescues people? And then I got down to verse 34 and, and I saw me. 
It says, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. You know who I am in the story? You know who I think some of you are in the story? We're the donkey. Yeah, you're welcome. No, stay with me. I mean it. I mean, if I get to be a character in the story, I'm cool with that. I mean, the donkey carried Jesus to the broken and the hurting man on the side of the road. The donkey is the one that Jesus could trust to carry him into a house where he could find healing and recover and find health. How many of you know that in some sense, Jesus has called us to carry the load? The Bible says in Galatians 6, 2, that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hey, I'll wear that. I'll wear that title with honor. If God would use me to carry the hurting and the broken to a place where they can find healing and redemption and strength, I'll take that part. And then we see, then we see the end that he brings them to. It, it, and I can't help but see the church in this moment. I mean, the Bible says that Samaritan paid two denarii based on the average salary of the day. Two denarii would have covered a few days of housing and expenses. So what the Lord spoke to me out of that is simply this, that God has given us, the church, every resource that we need to help the hurting. He's called us to be a spiritual hospital. Amen? Amen. Amen. God's called us to be a spiritual hospital. Thank you. He's called us to help people in their time of need. And that's what, that's what the innkeeper does. He takes him in. He cares for him. He helps him. He strengthens him. All because the good Samaritan provided the resources for him to do it. Now, this incredible story winds down. And Jesus asked the expert of the law, a question. Point blank. Look at it. Verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor for the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And I can imagine the reluctance at this point of this expert in the law who despises Samaritans. But it's so obvious. And he goes, ah. verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He, he couldn't bring himself to say it's the good Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy on him was obviously the one who was a neighbor. And then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Can I tell you something about the characters in this story and where you and I fall? Because truth be told, Jesus probably had one point he was trying to make. And it had to do with loving your neighbor. I don't know that this is an allegory. I don't know that every character is specifically supposed to represent one or many things. But the Holy Spirit can reveal things to us as we read it. And maybe as you read it, you would say, I'm the Samaritan. That's what God's called me to do. He wants me to see a need and meet a need. He's given me the ability. He's given me the resources. He sent me on the right path. And there are people that you're going to cross paths with this week. And God wants you to be the good Samaritan. How many of you believe that's enough? That's a, that's a good application of the word. You could take that and run with it. 
But maybe you're here, and if you're honest and, and humble enough, you would acknowledge today before God that I've been like that priest. I've been like that Levite. I, I know what to do. I've got the means to do it, but I've allowed myself to be distracted. I've allowed myself to be pulled in different directions, so much so that I, I miss the opportunity. I miss the opportunity to love my neighbor, to help somebody else in a time of need. You might even have enough imagination today to say, God's calling me to be like that donkey. That, that God wants to use me to be a carrier. To bring people from where they are, come on, to where God wants them to be. That's what God's called us to do. To be a carrier. And you say, you know what, I can hear the Holy Spirit telling me today, there's people He's put in my life, there's people within my reach. He wants me to come under the load and to help carry the burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. No doubt every one of us, we could say amen today to God's call to be the church. To be like this inn. To be a spiritual hospital for the hurting. God's called us to be a place where people that are broken, that are bruised, that are downtrodden, that are half dead, can come in and find wholeness of life. Amen? That's who God's called us to be. But listen. You're going to struggle. I'm going to struggle. For the rest of our lives. With this high calling. To love our neighbor if we don't first recognize which character in the story we are before every other. We're the man who fell in the ditch. We're the man who was robbed. Before you can be the Samaritan, before you can be the priest, the Levite, or any other character in the story, we have to come to the place where we understand that Jesus is talking about us. This is our story. We were the ones left half dead. You see, when, when the man goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he's taking a literal 17 mile journey, but all of us have taken a similar journey from a place where God's presence is to a place of destruction. You see, Jerusalem is the holy hill. Jerusalem is the place where people would go to meet with God. And that's the way it was before sin entered the human story. The Bible says in, in Genesis, Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God in the garden. They, they, had, they had a Jerusalem relationship. They were with God. And yet because of sin... In their life and in our life, every one of us have begun to move down the hill, away from God's presence to a place called Jericho. Now, Jericho wasn't a cursed city. You remember the story in, in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua leads the children of Israel. They march around the walls of Jericho. Once a day for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, and they shout, and the walls come down. God gives them the city of Jericho, but what does he say? He says, don't keep any of it. Totally destroy it. It's an accursed city. Can I tell you, that's the journey that each and every one of us have been on. We've gone from a place of having a right standing with God, but because of sin, we've moved down the road to being in a place that is cursed. The wages, the Bible says, 
of sin is death. It's death. And it's no mystery who the thieves and robbers are in the story. John 10.10 tells us the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. So here we are. This is us. This is our circumstance. We're the ones who have been uh, mugged by our own sin nature and beaten up by the enemy who works overtime to steal, kill, and destroy. We're the ones who are left half dead. And until we recognize that, until we realize that, that Jesus saved us, that Jesus redeemed us, and He picked us up, we'll never have the capacity or the compassion to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If you're in that place today, where you feel like you're on the side of the road somewhere, spiritually speaking, you feel half dead. I want to tell you, Jesus is here. And I'll be, I'll be a mule. I'll be a fool for Jesus. If it means having the opportunity to lead you to a place of healing and a place of hope. I want to tell you today, Jesus is here and he wants to pick you up right where you're at. He wants to help you, he wants to strengthen you. That's what this church is for. There's a place for you here that you can find healing and restoration and wholeness. There's not a person that's a part of this church that can say that wasn't me at one time. That was me. I was that man. Because I was that man, I refuse to be the men that walk around and leave you on the side of the road. Listen, if you're here today and you're far from God and you feel hurt and broken on the inside because of circumstances or your own choices, before you leave this place, I want to invite you to come and to find a place at this altar. At the end of this service, I'm, I'm going to invite you to just come and to have somebody pray with you. To have somebody Lead you to Jesus. He's here for you. He wants to help you today. But before we, before we have that moment, I felt so strongly this week as I was praying about this message and, and asking the Lord to just speak a clear word to us. I, I felt impressed of the Holy Spirit to just push the issue of practicality. Because there's a real danger when we read a story like this one. See, the danger for us is that we've heard it and that it's become just one big metaphor. See, Jesus, he wanted to, he wanted to show the extremes of love. And so when he chose the man who would love his neighbor, he chose an extreme example. He chose a man that, that nobody would expect to demonstrate love because these were people that hated each other. But the danger for us is that we look at that as the example of what it means to love your neighbor. And we can walk away from a story like this and say, God has called me to love people that are nothing like me. God has called me to love people that are on the other side of, of society, the other side of the world. People that don't talk like me. People that don't associate with me. Those are my neighbors. And I'm supposed to love those people. But can I tell you, Jesus only used that extreme example because he assumed that everybody listened knew that they already had a responsibility to love those that they did live with. 
He assumed that his audience knew we have a responsibility to love our fellow man. To do good for them. And so he goes and he gives this example of extravagant love. And this extravagant love is like like college level advanced love. I mean, this is big stuff. Hard to do. But I just feel the Holy Spirit challenging me this week to bring us all the way back to kindergarten love. To bring us back to a very practical application of what God is saying in this moment. Because honestly, think about it. How are we going to love somebody that's nothing like us? How are we going to love some terrorist and show compassion to someone we'd rather hate when we can't even love the person that lives next door? So the danger for us is that we turn this parable of the Good Samaritan into a metaphor and we say, everyone's my neighbor. The problem with that is when you aim at everything, you hit nothing. So everyone's my neighbor, but our community's not being changed. Everyone's my neighbor, but your next door neighbor doesn't know Jesus. So Jesus told this story to give us an example. But don't fall into the dangerous trap of just thinking your neighbor is the person that's nothing like you. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, can I tell you this morning, he meant your next door neighbor. I mean, sure, he meant people that are nothing like you. He meant people that are, that are totally different than you. He meant love people that are hard to love because the love of God knows no bounds, but it starts somewhere. And maybe the boundary is the end of your yard. He meant love your next door neighbor. If we don't take this command literally, And practically, then what we do is we turn the great commandment into nothing more than a metaphor. We metaphorically love our metaphoric neighbors. But nothing changes in reality. Can I just tell you, that's the reason that every October we throw a big old party on Halloween night. You might have seen the signs in the yard as you came in. Fall Fest, 6 to 8.30, October 31st. We throw a big party for this community. Why? Because it's the one night in the year where the neighbors actually come knocking on your door. And we could be one of those churches that just close the blinds and say, we don't celebrate that. That's evil. Stay away. I don't like the costumes. I don't like... Or we could say, wow, the neighbors are out. Let's turn the lights on. Let's throw a party. Let's love people. Let's not stand in accusation. Let's not pick apart all the faults and failures of people that are half dead on the side of the road. Let's just love people. So we turn the lights on. We throw a big old party. And people say, well, are you gonna, are you gonna have a platform out there? Are you gonna preach a message? Are you gonna give them the gospel? No. We're gonna give them candy. Yeah, hey, it's after 12. We can talk about candy and get some amens. We're going to give them food. We're going to give them a good time. And people say, what, 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 what? You, you don't, you don't want them to know Jesus? You don't want them to be saved? I mean, isn't that, isn't that what this is all about? Listen, their salvation, knowing the good news of Jesus Christ is the ultimate motivator. 
But it's not our ulterior motivation. There's a difference in those two things. You ever had somebody try to give you something with an ulterior motive? You know, like the salesman that calls you and says, listen, it's, it's, I've only got 24 hours and this deer, this deal is, is gone. So if you sign up today, we'll get you, they're trying to get you to do something, but you know, you know they have an ulterior motive. You know they're trying to get your name on the contract so that you can forget you signed a contract. And in 30 days, when the whole deal changes, you're going to get hit with a bill. When somebody tries to show you love with an ulterior motive, it's not love. It's bait and switch. It's gimmicky. Listen, we don't love people to convert them. We love them because we're converted. We don't love people with strings attached. We just love them because Jesus said, love them. There's no ulterior motive. Now, the ultimate motive, yes, we want them to know the love of God. But we're going to love them either way. Now, I want you to do something here as we get to the end of this message. I want to ask you to do something really practical. Just for a moment. Don't get nervous. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I want you to envision right now your neighbor. I don't mean the person that's not like you, that's on the other side of the world. I mean the person on the other side of the fence or the other side of the street. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit... To speak to you. Now maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never asked God to speak to you. It probably won't be audible. So let me just give you a heads up. But it will be an impression. It may be the first thought that comes to your mind. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit a question. Ask Him, how can I love my neighbor this week? It's a simple question. How can I love my neighbor This week. Allow the Holy Spirit to give you an idea. It's probably not complicated. Maybe it's a simple invitation to dinner. To have a barbecue. Maybe it's to take their trash cans in for them. Instead of complaining about them leaving them out there all week. Maybe it's to help them in the yard or carpool for their kids. I don't know, but just ask the Holy Spirit. How? Can I love my neighbor? Now open your eyes. I don't, I don't know what idea you might have just had or what God might have impressed you to do. But I bet I do know what the number one limitation will be to you actually doing it. It's time. Time. Isn't that the reason? More often than not, why we don't do the thing that we know we should do, the thing that we've thought about doing for weeks and maybe even months, and we've had good intentions for so long, but we haven't done it yet. Why? I'm busy. I'm, I'm busy. I, I just don't have time. I, I just, I don't have time for that. I mean, there's a lot of people that haven't gotten involved in a life group, not because they don't believe in it or they don't want to do it. They would just say, you know what? I don't have time. I got too much going on. I mean, I can give Sunday morning. And that's pretty much it. I got things to do. I got places to go. And I want to just push back from that excuse for just a moment. If you'll allow me. Because this is, after all, what Jesus called the greatest commandment. The greatest. Shouldn't that speak to our priorities a little bit? I mean, if this is the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor, is it really enough 
Are we okay with ourselves with saying, I don't have time to love my neighbor? I mean, I know I could do something, I just don't have time. I think it's, it's awesome the way that the, the Holy Spirit orchestrated the pages of God's Word. When Luke wrote this gospel, not everything he wrote was in chronological order. But it was in the order that the Holy Spirit had him write it in. And it's significant that right after this parable is a story. Not a parable, an actual event that took place. Right after this story in Luke 10, we read about a time that Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Many of you remember that story. What happened was Jesus shows up with his entourage. All of his disciples are there. And Martha starts busying herself, readying up the house and preparing the food and trying to be hospitable. But the whole time Jesus is there and he's talking and he's teaching. And her sister Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's just sitting there listening, soaking up every word that Jesus is saying. And and Mary is just loving this moment. And Martha is, is just at her wit's end. And finally, she blurts out to Jesus in verse 41, or verse 40 of Luke 10. She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Look at the next verse. Jesus says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. That's a crazy story. I don't know if you get exactly what happened there, but I'm pretty sure Jesus just rebuke somebody for serving him. I mean, she wasn't out just, you know, doing her own thing. She's actually serving Jesus. She's, she's bringing him uh, tea and, and cookies and she's made the house look good and she's prepared dinner. She's being hospitable. She's serving Jesus and yet Jesus rebukes her. He rebukes her because her priorities were out of alignment. And he says to Martha in that moment, there's, there's one thing that's the most important thing. I'm not saying your thing's not important. Your thing's a good thing, but I'm telling you there's a great thing. And that's what the Holy Spirit's telling us today. There's lots of good things we can do, but there's a great commandment. And it ought to be more important. And I think Jesus looks at some of the stuff, even the things that we do in his name. And he says, it's good, but it's not great. If you're stepping over the broken and the hurting and the people that I've put in your path to go and to do the good thing, then the good thing is the wrong thing. And the Holy Spirit rebukes us. and calls us to readjust our priorities. I believe that's what He's calling some of us to today. To readjust our priorities. To make the great commandment great. In our own heart. In our own life. To say this really is what it all boils down to. This really is what's most important. I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor. And yes, that means the nations. But it starts with the neighborhood. It starts next door. I want to invite you to stand with me all across this room. We're going to pray a closing prayer.
And as we do, I just sense that God wants us to, in our heart, right now, to just slow down. To just slow down a little bit. See, the truth is, we've, we've been, even in this service, we've been to that holy hill. Just as they went up to Jerusalem to meet with God, we've had that moment. And as you exit these doors in a few moments, you're going to travel a 17-mile road. You're going to travel past people that are half dead. The enemy has mugged them this week. The thief is stealing, killing, and destroying their life. For some of you, that road is going to travel right through the break room at your office. For some of you, that road is going to travel down the hall of your high school or your middle school. This morning as I was praying, I thought about Louise Myers. She lives next door to the church here. She's been the primary caretaker for her husband, Glenn, for over a month now. He's sick. She's constantly by his side. And the thought occurred to me that that 17-mile road travels right through her living room. There's somebody that God's called you to notice and to neighbor. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. And I want to give you just a final moment here in the stillness and in the holiness of this atmosphere to allow God to give you some very clear and very practical instructions. God, thank you today that you rescued us. Thank you that, Lord God, while we were broken and alone, you came and rescued us. Thank you, God, that that you brought people around us like the church to bring us into a family. Thank you, God, that you set the lonely in families and that we are in a house of healing today where we're being strengthened. We're growing from faith to faith. Thank you, God, that you picked us up. God, help us today as we go out of this place as we get back on the road, Lord, to refuse to be like those who don't have time. Help us to refuse to be like those who are too focused on our own tasks, our own agenda, that we miss the moment to do the greatest thing. Lord, we don't want to just love you up on the hill with our hands reaching high. We want to love you in the valley with our hands extended to those in need. God, impress upon our heart today how to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name.